We had one reading this morning from John 6 of the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, our text today is from the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. It's another reading of the feeding of the 5,000. So this is God's word for us this morning, so let's pay heed to it. Mark 6, beginning with verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Let's ask God to bless the preaching of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. You caused it to be written. Every word of it is your word, every jot, every tittle. We thank you for the gospel of Mark, and we thank you for this beautiful story of Jesus feeding 5,000 souls. This is a familiar story to us, and we think we know it well. But we need your help, Holy Spirit, to bring out its full and true meaning. And so we ask you to illuminate these words and then allow us to apply them to our own lives. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, as we begin this morning, let me, let me make just a few observations about, about the Gospels in general, and then a few more specifically about Mark's Gospel. You know, there's nothing else in the literature of the world quite like the four Gospels. You know, our problem is is that we're so familiar with them that we don't, I think, realize just how unique they really are. For example, most of the books uh, uh, that make up the New Testament are letters. We have no difficulty in, in recognizing them as letters. You know, we can call them by a fancy name, the epistles. But they're actually letters, and you can't mistake them for, for anything else. They begin with the ancient equivalent of dear so-and-so, 
And then they conclude with a, with a typical greeting. But what would we compare the Gospels to? You know, they're not like, they're not like anything else that we've ever read. You know, some people have referred to them as biographies. But they're not like any biographies I've read, and I've read a lot of biographies. You know, there's almost no psychological detail uh, in, the, in the Gospels. We get very little of Jesus' thoughts or attitudes or private opinions. Biographies typically do that. You know, we're not told what he looked like. We're not told what he sounded like. Two of these four books tell us nothing of the birth or of the early life of their subject. And none of them tell us a thing about his young adulthood. You know, the, the Gospels don't tell us many other things that you might expect to learn in biographies. They don't describe a man in his life. Instead, what they do, they proclaim that man as the Lord of the whole world. And they proclaim that his life is the only way of salvation for every single human being. You know, the word gospel doesn't mean either teaching, it doesn't mean record. It actually means news. So a gospel is a form of literature that tells a story. And, but only in order to preach a message. A message that brings news, and in this case, it brings good news. And that message, that good news, is about what God has already done for us, rather than instruction and advice about what we're to do for God. The message points to the primacy of His work, and then how human beings should respond to that work. And that, in summary, in a nutshell, is what a gospel is. It's a unique form in the literary world. Now, most scholars believe that Mark was the earliest of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, these other Gospels pick up a lot of material that's in Mark. It's sort of the, uh, the model for the other three Gospels. It's very interesting. There's no clear reference in Mark's Gospel to the fall of Jerusalem to Roman forces and the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And it's hard to believe that anyone writing after that date, writing after 70 A.D., could have left such an important event as that out of the narrative. Therefore, most scholars date Mark in and around 65 A.D. And I hope you see the implications of that. You know, that would mean that there were thousands of eyewitnesses to all these events still alive when this document was written. It also means that Mark had more than enough sources for producing an accurate account. He didn't have to rely on second-hand information, which couldn't be verified. Now, he had first-hand accounts, eyewitnesses, people who had been there, who had done that, seen that. And you see, it, it also means that there was a control in place which made it difficult for the author to fabricate accounts. You know, all those eyewitnesses made the author be very careful about what he wrote down. What he said had to be true and accurate 
or he, he would be called on it. He'd be called to account. So what I'm saying is that the dating of Mark before 70 A.D. strongly encourages us to trust his reporting as accurate. You know, Mark was an interesting man. He was, he was well-connected with most of the apostles, particularly Peter. You know, later in the New Testament, it says that Mark was working with Peter in Rome. He knew personally many of the principles of the gospel story. And he may very well have known the Lord Jesus Christ himself when he was a young man. You know, from the earliest days, the gospel of Mark has been, has been very closely associated with Peter. You know, it was the universal testimony of the early church that Mark's gospel was in a very real way Peter's memoirs. You know, that Mark basically followed Peter around with a notebook. He wrote down what he heard Peter preach, what he heard people say about the things that Peter had actually seen. So the authority of Mark's gospel actually derives from the authority of Peter the Apostle. You know, one of the Lord's innermost circle of disciples. And Peter was there. He was an eyewitness of. He was a participant in just about everything that happened in the Lord's public ministry, including this miracle that we take up today. You know, a little context as we work our way into the text. If you look back in chapter 6, verses 7 through 13, you'll see that the Lord sent the 12 disciples out in pairs. He sent them out two by two on their first short-term mission trip around Galilee. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, he tells us that there were about 200 towns and villages in Galilee at the time of Jesus. And he figures that if, if, if six pairs of disciples went to each of those towns, that it would take roughly about six months or so for them to complete this mission. And so now here in verse 30, the first verse of our text today, these disciples have returned, and they debrief Jesus on what has happened during those six months. And it's amazing. The response of the people to this mission trip is absolutely staggering. Not just tens, not just hundreds, but thousands of people now are thronging to Jesus. They're coming with their questions. They're coming with sick folk that they want to be healed. And we see here the apostles were trying to have a conversation with Jesus. They were trying to get something to eat. And they can't because all the people are crowding around. You know, maybe as many as ten or 12,000 people, if you count all the women and children. You know, if you glance down to verse 44, it says there the word men. That's gender-specific. So there were many more people present than just 5,000 men. There were also many women and children. There were a lot of people coming to see Jesus. It was basically pretty much of a mob scene. So both the Lord and the disciples, they needed some downtime to reflect on what had happened on this missionary trip. They wanted to get some rest. They were probably exhausted. So they took a boat along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. 
to an isolated spot in hopes of leaving these crowds behind, but it didn't work out. You know, the text says the crowd followed them, and they actually beat Jesus and the disciples to this desolate place where, where they were going to get some rest. But the Lord apparently isn't very upset about this. It says here that he shows compassion for these people who basically are spiritually clueless because they're spiritually leaderless. They're like sheep, it says here, without a shepherd. And I think the question is, you know, what does that tell us about people in general and about ourselves specifically? Well, we know that sheep are, are not self-sufficient. They're utterly dependent on their shepherd for protection and, and feeding. You know, sheep could not possibly exist in the wild. Sheep are not very bright. They follow one another. They lose their direction continually, something incidentally that cats and dogs almost never do. So this sheep image, I think, teaches us about the plain foolishness that's in our hearts. But I think most of all, it teaches us that sheep are helpless. They can't save themselves. They must be wholly saved by somebody else. They contribute nothing. What about Jesus as a shepherd? You know, I think the shepherd is an ideal of both tenderness and roughness. Shepherds have to protect sheep from wild animals. They have to be resourceful, skilled with weapons. And yet they do it all for the care of very helpless and silly animals. You know, the shepherd serves as protector, physician, provider, leader, owner. The sheep are dependent on the shepherd for absolutely every area of their lives. In short, I think this, this sheep-shepherd image, I think it shows us that we're more spiritually obtuse than we ever dared think. You know, we're sheep. But we're more valued and loved by God than we ever dared hope. Jesus is the shepherd. Well, that in kind of a long way brings us to Mark's recording here. This amazing thing. Jesus' feeding of this crowd. So I want to just camp out here for the rest of the morning and take a closer look. Now, what an afternoon and evening that must have been. You know, wouldn't you have liked to have been there to have witnessed this? You know, a miracle so stunning. A provision so utterly incomprehensible that it cast even the Lord's greatest miracles of healing into the shadows. You know, feeding 5,000 men and even more women and children with just a few scraps of food and feeding them until no one wanted any more. You know, it's that verse 42 tells us clearly that this wasn't just a little snack. You know, to tie these people over until something more substantial could be found. No, the emphasis here falls on the immense scale of the Lord's provision for the people. It says they all ate. They were all filled. They were satisfied. 
Now, no wonder that it should be this miracle of all that Jesus performed that is alone reported in all four of the Gospels. Well, how was it done? You know, what did these people see as the food was multiplied? Now, what are we to take away from this remarkable history as Mark has reported it here to us? As he reported Peter's own vivid eyewitness recollections of that remarkable day? I think that's an interesting question because Mark himself doesn't say. You know, surely the miracle serves, as all of his miracles do, to, they're his credentials to accredit him as the Son of God and as the Messiah, to demonstrate the nature of Christ's salvation. But as the song goes, is that all there is? Are we meant to take away from this record more than just these, these general lessons we see in all of Jesus' miracles? As I said, it's interesting that Mark simply reports the events here. You know, we might have expected him to, to, to maybe enumerate, you know, some of the implications of that remarkable scene, to draw some lessons for life from this incredible wonder. But Mark doesn't do that. He doesn't spell out any lessons for us to get hold of. He simply states the facts of the case. Yet I think in a very interesting way, Mark tells us that this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 teaches us important things for faith, important things for life. And here's what I mean by that. If you'll look down, you'll notice that the next paragraph describes the Lord's miracle of walking on the waters of the Sea of Galilee. Now, if we were to read that section, we would note that the disciples, they were, if you recall, they were rowing against the wind in the middle of the night when Jesus appeared to them walking on the water. And Mark tells us that they were terrified. They actually thought they saw a ghost. But Jesus climbs into the boat, and he calms everything down. And it's then, in verses 51 and 52, that we read this. They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. Now, I think that's a revealing statement. In other words... The feeding of the 5,000 should have taught these disciples about Jesus, about who he was, what he came to do, about the way he, he cares for his people, what he's capable of doing for them, and how there are no limits to his power or to the provision that he makes for his followers. The feeding of the 5,000 should have made the disciples think and behave differently on the lake, but it didn't but because they failed to grasp the lessons from the feeding of the 5,000. They didn't understand about the loaves. You know, that miracle should have taught them what it means to follow Jesus and how we're to serve him. But apparently they didn't get the memo. Based on their rather sketchy performance on the Sea of Galilee. So I want us to look at this miracle 
and see if we can't tease out the lessons of Christian life and service that Jesus intended for the disciples. Lessons that they, at least initially, failed to, failed to grasp. You know, it seems to me there's probably more, but there's at least three key lessons that we can carry away from this great miracle for ourselves today. Now, I've listed them in the sermon notes. I think it's in the bulletin. You might want to follow along. First, I would want you to take note of the fact that the Lord uses what we have to do what we could not do. Have you ever wondered, as you've read this narrative many times, why Jesus used the five loaves and the two fish? Why did he do that? You know, it's not like he had to use them. You know, he could have done this miracle without any raw material. The Bible says that he could turn stones to bread if he wanted to. And there were certainly lots of stones littering this countryside. So why did he do it? Why didn't he just turn those rocks into bread and have everyone go pick himself up a loaf? Well, I suggest that the main reason that Jesus did it this way was that he wanted to feed this crowd of hungry people by using his disciples and what they could muster up to do it. Now, verse 37 says that Jesus told these disciples not to send these people away, but you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. You see, Jesus wanted them to participate in this remarkable event, to have a share in it, to have some skin in the game. And so he had them gather up what they could, what they could find. And he used what they brought him to feed these thousands of people. And I, I hope you see that this, this is a wonderful place to begin thinking about our own serving the Lord. You see, for all of us, in one way or another, Jesus asks us to do more than we can do. Just like these disciples. You know, Jesus told them to feed the 5,000 people. And they, and they said, or thought, I know they said or thought, you've got to be kidding me. You know, there's no way we can do that. We don't have nearly enough food. Jesus, you're asking us to do much more than we're capable of. And I think in one way or another, the Lord asks exactly that of us every single day. Whether it's in our marriages, in our home, our kindness to others, management of our money, conquest of our lusts, our doubts, you know, our loving other people who, who are not loving. You know, whatever it is, I think we think exactly like these men did. That God is asking us to feed 5,000 men with food sufficient for only one. He's asking us of us more than we're capable of. And here's the thing, of course we're right, but then he's not asking us to do anything by ourselves, by our own devices, by our own strength. He's telling us what he will do with the little that we have. And you see, that's a completely different thing as the disciples were 
to soon find out. You know, I think many times a day, we don't do what the Lord asks us to do or commands us to do because it never occurs to us to think that we can. You know, he asks too much. We have too little. Whatever it is that we have too little of. Brains, courage, faith, love, joy, strength, self-control. Pick one. We have far too little of it with which to do what the Lord is asking of us. Now, here's how I think, and I suspect this is how you think too. Lord, I, I can't love an enemy with my five loaves and two fish worth of tenderheartedness and humility and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't do it. I can't conquer a lust with my five loaves and two fish worth of hatred of sin, love of holiness, and zeal for the Lord's honor and name. I can't do it. But you see, here's the thing. The Lord never intended to feed that multitude with only that amount of food. Now, he took that small amount, which was all they had, and he made it much more. Sufficient to do the job and then some. You know, note that not only was everybody satisfied, but note that there were lots of leftovers after everybody had been fed. And so it will be with us in our serving the Lord. You know, Augustine, the great bishop of Hippo, he once said something which I think perfectly captures what the Lord did here. You know, in asking of the disciples to feed 5,000 with just enough food for one, or in asking you to do what you cannot do by yourself. Remember what he said? Augustine said, command what you will, O Lord, but give what you command. Command what you will, O Lord, but give what you command. You see, that's, what, that's precisely what Jesus did here. He told his disciples to do what they couldn't do, and then he used the little they had. And he made of it enough to do the very thing that he had commanded. Dear ones, a hundred times every single day, we should tell the Lord the same thing. Command what you will, O Lord, but give what you command. So I think that's, that's one thing that we can tease out of this, this text here. That's one important lesson of Christian life and service from this passage. The Lord uses what we have to do what we could not do. Then I think in the second place, I want you to take note of the fact that what we have, Jesus has to bless. It says here that the disciples arranged everyone in groups, ranged all around the Lord, and, and then he, he adds this interesting little account here, sitting on the green grass. That's an eyewitness account. It doesn't mean anything. It's just something that Peter noticed, which makes it seem to be real. But you see, Jesus didn't simply have the, have the disciples break up the bread and fish and send the food around. Note in verse 41 that Jesus took it from the disciples. He gave thanks, and he broke it. 
In other words, the food was given to Jesus first. Then he gave it to his disciples, and they distributed it. They gave it to the people. So you see, Mark Pike makes it perfectly clear here that it's by the power of the Lord that the deed is done, and not by anything that the disciples had done or could do. You know, we all have certain powers <clears throat> and gifts and abilities. And I think sometimes it's easy to think that what we accomplish in Christian service or in other areas is something that we've done, something that we've accomplished. But Jesus said, and then I think he demonstrated in a hundred ways, including here, without me, you can't do anything. At every point in the Gospels, if you go back and look at it, we see the Lord teaching his disciples this lesson. Certainly he's teaching it here. And at almost every point, they fail to remember this. And when they fail to do that, what happens? They inevitably start to flounder. You know, we see Peter beginning to sink as he walks on the Sea of Galilee. We see him betraying the Lord after boasting of his own loyalty. And right after Jesus' transfiguration, we see the disciples unable to heal a young boy with an unclean spirit because they tried to do that exorcism in their own power. And Jesus tells them that the reason they failed was because they forgot to pray. They failed to exercise their faith in Jesus' power to get it done. Dear ones, the Lord will use what little we have. But his blessing, you see, his working is the key. And so it will be with each of us. I don't care what our work is, whether it's preaching or parenting or witnessing or, or studying and learning or, or putting on godliness or loving others. You know, what you and I, I have is plenty. It's enough. It's more than enough. If only the Lord will bless and break it. You know, every time I, I, I preach, I, I have one simple prayer that I always pray. God, you know I am willing to do this. But unless you show up, nothing's going to happen. You know, unless you bless these words, they're just empty words. So we should look to him always for everything. Look to him to bless what we give him and what we have to serve him with, whatever that is. And finally, although it's a little hard to see here, it's only when we actually serve the Lord that his blessing is given and increased. Let's just have a little quick uh, grammar tutorial here. I'm not very good at grammar. In verse 41, take a look there. You know, most Bible translations, the one I read, I think, it says, He gave them, He gave the loaves to the disciples to set before the people. But the original reads, He was giving them to the disciples. And what's going on here, Mark is using a form of the past tense, which expresses a continuing action. It's called the aorist tense. It's a past tense which expresses continuing action. I, uh, I think the New American Standard Version best captures this, this continuing action. The New American Standard renders that phrase, he kept giving them to the disciples. 
to set before the crowd. He kept giving them. And the same is true of that word divided in the same verse. A better rendering was he was dividing, or he kept dividing the two fish among them all. You know, you see what Mark is getting at here? He's saying that it was only as the disciples distributed the bread and fish that they actually increased. You know, I'm not sure exactly how Jesus did all this. Mark doesn't say. And it's really not all that important. But we can see that one thing he didn't do, he didn't take the five loaves and two fish and create from them this gigantic pile of bread and fish from which the disciples would carry away armfuls for the crowd. That's not how Jesus did it. You know, Mark gives the clear impression that the disciples would come to Jesus. They would get an armful of food from him and go and give it out to the groups of people sitting around on the green grass. And every time they ran out, they came back to Jesus for more. And there, were more, and there was more to give to them and then to go and give it out to the people. And it says that that, that continued until everybody was full. Now think about that for just a minute. Now, isn't that a perfect picture of the manner in which the Lord calls us to serve him? You know, we would prefer for the Lord to simply pile up the bread and the fish in this great mountain so that we could sort of see it all ahead of time and we could come and get an armful you know, anytime we needed or wanted some. You know, I, I struggle against the notion that every time I have a need, I have to go back to the Lord for more. To get what I can't see or taste or touch until I've sought it from His hand. You know, I'm like you. I would much prefer to have all my needs satisfied all at once. But dear ones, that's not the way the Lord does it. And there's, and, and there's no use waiting for Him to pile up the bread. There's no use waiting for him to fill up your pantry so that you won't need to trust him for it piece by piece. (laughs) Because he's not going to do it. It's by faith in him that we must live every day and all our lives. Isn't that the lesson here? it's, it's, It's like the collection of the manna in the desert. Remember that the Lord only gave the people one day's worth of manna to eat except on the weekends when he gave them two days' worth of food so they wouldn't have to be collecting it on the Sabbath. And you know what happened if they tried to collect more than one day's worth? It would go bad. Got all wormy. Couldn't be eaten. So here I think we see it's only when we serve the Lord that his blessing is given and it's increased. Well, there's probably more here. There's a lot more here. There always is. But we need to wrap this up. But I do, I do want you to see that this great miracle, maybe even the greatest of the Lord's miracles, it's a message to us about the way in which we're to live and how we're to serve the Lord. Always depending upon Him, day by day, we're to take what little we have to Him that He might bless it and break it and so make possible much more than we could ever have done ourselves. And when that has been consumed and used 
to go back to him again for a fresh supply of, of whatever grace it is we stand in need of to perform whatever command he has given us. It's a valuable, valuable lesson in the Christian life, Christian service and ministry. You see, it's a picture of a life of, of constant active dependence on the presence, the provision, and the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, no thoughtful Christian would ever deny. Instead, you will, I think, readily admit that there are many things in your life which seem as impossible to you as feeding 12,000 men, women, and children with just a few scraps of food seemed impossible to these disciples. I don't know what it is. For example, rising above a particular besetting sin, loving somebody who has hurt you, raising your children in a godly way, breaking your proud heart, before the Lord. You know, breaking free from some bondage which is corrupting your life. Whatever it is, I say to you this morning on the authority of Holy Scripture that what you have with, with which, which to do these things, that's, it's enough. It's more than enough. If only you will take it to the Lord so He can bless it and break it. Dear ones, ask Jesus to help you to do what he has commanded you to do. And then come back to him again and again for the same grace, the same help. Because you see, he gives it out by prayerfuls and not all at once. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to bless these words to our hearts this morning. May our daily lives be just one long, sustained dialogue with you. When it's time to pray, may we come back to you and say, Lord, fix my attention on you. When taking up our Bible, may we come to you and say, Lord, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things in your law. When taking up a, a piece of business, May we go back to you and say, Lord, may I do and get good from this transaction. When facing a difficulty, may we come back to you and say, Lord, help me to do your will alone and direct my paths. When we encounter temptations, may we again return to you and say, Lord, let your strength be made perfect in my weakness. Uphold me with your spirit. Lord, in all we do, may we come to you for sustenance, for strength, for protection. And in everything, may we keep your glory in view. And I pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.